done, and both these projects were collaborative projects. Um, in particular, um, I was collaborating with Chris Giacomo Antonio from Rand Europe on one of these projects. Chris uh, used to be one of the DPhil students here, he left about a year or so ago, and we started this project while he was still on his DPhil here. Um, and I have a collaborator on the, on the other experiment I'm going to talk about, Sarah McQueen from the University of Edinburgh. And I have to say, in both cases, they did most of the work. So, uh, in a sense, I'm taking, not glory is not the right word, I'm taking credit for actually a huge amount of work done by other people in some of this. Anyway. Uh, experiments in police confidence and police legitimacy. I'm going to start off with a bit of what you could characterise as deep background to this, just, just framing this um, in a couple of debates within the sociology of policing, within police studies much, wide, much more widely. Um, and then a bit more immediate background to why do we care about these issues of public confidence and police legitimacy, particularly in the context of Great Britain. Um, the experiments I'm going to be talking about, one took place in England, the other took place um, in Scotland, and it's at least arguable there's something specific about these contexts which make these kind of experiments particularly relevant. And it's also arguable that they may not travel particularly well to other policing contexts. I think that's something worthy of discussion later on. I'm going to introduce the idea of procedural justice, which directly uh, motivated one of the experiments, and think a bit about the relationship between police and community that procedural justice model and other ideas um, kind of uh, themselves motivates. Um, and then I'm going to describe the results of two experiments. And one, one was a quasi-experiment um, on the effect of mounted police community patrols um, in three areas in, 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 in uh, Gloucestershire, in South England and in London. And the other is a replication of um, a quite well-known study from Australia, Queensland Community Engagement Trial, QSET, um, that we conducted in Scotland. And that's obviously the project I did with Sarah McQueen. And I'm going to finish with some questions. You will have noticed I've lost from the title the bit about, uh, what I can't remember what I had on the title originally, um, Promises and Pitfalls. Um, that's mainly because I'm not really qualified. I'm, I'm not that strong a methodologist to talk about the experimental method in quite that, in quite that way. Um, but I think some of the promises and pitfalls of the use of experiments in criminological contexts come out in the course of the discussion, or at least um, I hope they do. So the first bit of background is this, and this really is deep background, I think. I think what I'm talking about today, the kind of research I'm talking about um, today, really presupposes two things. It presupposes that people want and at least expect at some point in the future to get democratic policing. Obviously, you can de define democratic policing in lots and lots of ways. Most of the definitions condense around something like this. So democratic police organisations have respect for citizens' rights. They use procedural fairness. They use procedural justice. Um, they use the minimum or appropriate levels of force. Um, they're accountable. They're responsible to those they serve. They engage in citizen participation. Um, they, they operate in equitable ways. They're responsive to the needs of those they serve, etc., etc. I mean, at the very least, we're presupposing that people want and think it's feasible they can get this. I think it's also possible we're presupposing that policing actually is like this, at least in some contexts, for example, within the United Kingdom. The British police do meet some of these criteria, at least some of the time. And if we were dealing with a police force in a different situation where the police find it very difficult to meet these criteria, I think a lot of what I'm saying today might be problematic, to say the least. That's the first bit of background. The second bit of background really leads on from that, in a sense, and that's the image or the imaginary or the ideology that surrounds policing in Great Britain. And obviously there was once to draw a distinction between Great Britain and the United Kingdom, for obvious reasons. And this is one set of images you could construct around policing in this context. I think, I think the key, I don't know if you can see that, the key message there is meet your neighbours. 
So we were operating in a context where people can imagine, at least imagine, that the police can in some sense be their neighbours, that it makes sense to claim that the police could be your neighbours, that they'll have something, they'll want to have things to do, they'll want to engage with you, they'll want to act on your priorities, etc., etc. I could go on, but I'm, I'm sure you get the message. Um, of course, that's not the only image of policing that exists in the United Kingdom. Here's another set of images. These things run alongside each other, always um, and in, in interact with each other in complicated ways. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's true that there's a particular cultural resonance of policing that persists in England, Wales and Scotland. Um, and a lot of what I'm saying today is in a sense founded on the idea that people still, still do think about policing in something like these terms, at least in some times and in some places within this particular social context. Um, the real background now, the background motivating these studies is really... Um, uh, a trend in, in both uh, criminology, in, in both policing studies, and in policy circles, and within police organisations themselves, that you could say started in the 1990s. Actually, I think you could also say that it started a long time before that. And that was a specific set of concerns that arose about declining public trust and confidence in the police. And this really started to come onto the policy agenda in the late 1990s into the 2000s, obviously reacting to events around the time, for example, the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, but also <coughs> reacting to long-term historical trends that were really starting to be identified um, at that time. This led to many, many different policy interventions. We can think about reassurance policing, neighbourhood policing, etc., etc. And it ultimately led to the establishment by the last Labour government of a single overarching target, performance target, for police in England and Wales, which was a measure of public trust and confidence. And police organisations were jointly and severally tasked with increase, increasing public confidence across a variety of measures. Um, this obviously, and perhaps not surprising, acted as a spur to research. We're now seeing, if you, if you like, uh, another stage of this research that started in the 1990s. And this work, at its, uh, this, this concern at its outset, um, was based around this, in essentially one survey question. It's a survey question that's been in the British Crime Survey since its inception, and it's the famous question that asks people, taking everything into account, how good a job do you think the police in your local area are doing? And if we look at the trends from the British Crime Survey, this is from 1984 to 2005-06, I think you could conclude on that basis that reports of a hemorrhage of public support for police are overstated. You will see this language in some of the literature around this. This didn't happen. So these bars here, if you can see this, the dark bar is the people rating the police very good. The middle part is fairly good, fairly poor, very poor. So most of the concern was around the decline in the proportion of people rating the police is very good. It's fell from about 30% in 1984 to about 15% in 2003 4 They changed the question wordings in 2003, which was slightly annoying. It doesn't matter too much about that. And at the same time, there was a decline in this very, very, strong, very, very good rating. Um, the fairly poor and very poor ratings in increase. But it's not huge. You might look at this chart and kind of doubt the motivations for the kind of work I'm talking about today. I think you'd be mistaken to do that. And I've put two charts in, mainly because I just really like them. But I think they illustrate the points I'm trying to make. So on this chart here, on the horizontal axis, we've got years. On the vertical axis, we've got the proportion of people rating their local police as very good. And then each one of those lines represents the views of people born in a particular decade. So the blue line at the top, the dark blue line, is people born in the before the 1920s. The next slide down is people born in the 1920s, in the 1930s, and 1940s, etc., etc. So it's a kind of pseudo-cohort analysis. And what it clearly shows, in the earlier years, there were huge proportions of people born quite a long time ago who were rating their local police as very good. But as these two decades went on, their views collapsed down to meet the views of the younger people who had always been slightly more suspicious, slightly more sceptical 
of the police. There's this real funnel shape. So by the time we get to the re most recent year, there's almost no variation in age in opinions of the police. The, the views of the people who previously had the most favourable perception of the police had gone down to meet those who previously had the least favourable. This chart tells the same story, does exactly the same thing in a sense, but now we have the views of a notional 50-year-old man, white man, living outside the inner city. That's the blue line. And the red line is the views of a notional 20-year-old man from an ethnic minority group living in the inner city. And again, you've got this funnel shape. So what I, think, what I think both these charts demonstrate is there really was a decline in trust and confidence over this period. It really was something that people needed to be concerned about, and they were right to pick up on it as an issue. It wasn't of overweening importance, which is some of the things you view, but some of the ways it's presented in various parts of the literature. Um, You'll know who you'll have noticed, or the observant among you will have noticed, that I've put scare marks around trust and confidence um, throughout so far. Um, there's a number of reasons for doing this. I mean, this is the commonly accepted term, or it seems to be the commonly accepted term, for talking about public opinion of the police. People will always talk about trust and confidence of the police. No one ever sat down to think what they meant by this. I, mean, I think I'll go on to suggest in a minute that it's quite a lot to do with legitimacy, but people didn't really want to talk about declining legitimacy of the police. That sounded a bit scary, so they said trust and confidence instead. No one ever worked out what to trust the police might actually mean. I don't think they did, or not to any great extent. Um, and now, facing up to this, um, various police organisations started to say we need to know more about public opinion. We need to unpack this trust and confidence to find out what's going on underneath it and what factors might, in a sense, drive trust and confidence. So about 2008-2009, I and some colleagues from the LSE started to do some work with the MPS to generate a kind of more robust, more robust set of measures around the issues of trust and confidence, um, which really got to grips with what might be going on underneath and really engaged with the literature on trust, for example. Um, and the MPS still has targets based on these measures to these days. So borough commanders in the Met are still tasked with increasing public trust and confidence across some of the measures that I'm just about to describe. Um, and obviously, the literature on trust is vast. Um, we can only ever look at a small amount of it. But I think particular relevant definitions or understandings of trust um, in this context revolve around the work of people like Barber and Hardin. So Barber says that trust involves expectations that those we trust will be technically competent to do the things we're trusting them to do, and that those we trust will place our own interests above our own. And of course, that therefore implies that they know what our own interests are. They understand what our interests are within a particular trust relationship. Um, Hardin says the same thing slightly more succinctly. To say we trust you means we believe you have the right intentions towards us and that you're competent to do what we trust you to do. So it's about intentions and it's about competency. I think you could also say it's about expectations and evaluations. When you trust someone, you expect them to behave in a certain way, but your expectations are at least partly based on your evaluation of their prior behaviour or performance. So trust always wraps up, I think, expectation and evaluation. And the other thing about trust in this context, and Guido Mullering, who actually talks about um, trust in kind of business context more than anything else, he says trust always involves a leap of faith. You're always trusting in relatively low information context. If you had all the information about someone, you wouldn't need to trust them because you'd know what they were going to do in a particular context. And trust also is also therefore always implies in, con well, in, in, in implies context of risk. So based on this work, and based on some other work that people have done in the past, obviously we didn't come up with this on our own really, um, we defined three dimensions of trust in the London Metropolitan Police, but I think these could apply to police organisations very much more widely than that. So we talked, well, that slide's gone a bit wrong, we started to talk about trust in police effectiveness, trust in police community engagement, and trust in police fairness. 
trust in police effectiveness, obviously competence, trust in police community engagement, trust in police fairness, wraps up intentions, right intentions, uh, shared interests, motivations, so forth and so on. And we tend to find, and I'll, I'll go on to talk about some of the measures we use to, to look at these things in a minute, we tend to find these are empirically distinct constructs or components of trust, but they also in some, some sense um, sum together to generate an overall measure of trust and confidence, should you wish to do that. Why is this trust important? Well, I don't think I really need to stress this in this context, but there's a lot of evidence that suggests to the extent that people trust organisations or institutions such as the police, they're more likely to cooperate with them, they're more likely to defer to them, they're more likely to uh, comply with orders, more likely to come forward with information, etc. There's obviously the obvious link between trust and confidence and legitimacy, which I've already addressed. Um, but there's some questions here, of course, and this is one of the reasons why the Met was so interested in this work. They were interested in not just knowing what trust looked like, but the kind of factors that shaped trust in the police. Because they'd been tasked with increasing public trust and confidence, they wanted to know what can we do about this. How can we, how can we work with members of the public to enhance their sense of trust in us as an organisation? We need to think a bit more about the relationship between trust and legitimacy, um, and we need to think a bit more about what the police can do to bolster these things. This is where procedural justice theory comes in. I think this, this, this is the basis for almost all the work I've done um, so far. And this offers, I think, the most robust and most empirically well-supported way of understanding the nature of police-community relations and the types of things police officers can do to enhance or, of course, undermine trust. I should always say, and Mary's not here because she always puts me up on this, um, I always talk about these things in a very positive sense. I'm always talking about things that police can do to increase trust. But they, all the relationships I'm going to be talking about to do are bi-directional. They feel lots of things that police can do to um, motivate distrust or damage trust, and these tend to be the reverse of the kind of things I'm thinking about today. It's important to recognise that. Um, procedural justice theory developed by Tom Tyler and colleagues um, working in the United States in the 1980s, finding increasing purchase in con criminal justice contexts around the world, although it's probably not a universal, we don't think that, I don't think. Um, and this is really at its base, a, a theory or a model for understanding social relations in group settings, particularly groups where one member of the group represents the group as a whole, and particularly group settings where one member of the group has significant power over other members of the group. Now you can't think, I think, of a better way of describing the relationship that people in Britain have with the police on that basis. Um, it provides a way of understanding, as I say, what types of police behaviour motivate trust, generate legitimacy, generate cooperation, generate compliance. Most of you will have heard this before, so I'll whisk, I'll whisk through this. Um, Procedural Justice Theory says that when police, police officers treat people um, justly, respectfully, di with dignified treatment, when they utilise transparent and fair decision-making, when they allow people a voice, when they look like they're listening to people's voice and they're at least prepared to act on what people are telling to them, this generates a sense that the police are behaving in a procedurally fair way. It generates precisely a sense of trust. And this sense of procedural justice, this sense of trust, flows into legitimacy. And according to the procedural justice model, legitimacy flows into cooperation, deference, compliance with the law, all this good stuff, if you like, that's meant to flow out at the end. And of course, the, 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 one of the most important aspects of procedural justice theory is it says that procedural justice is a more important way of generating trust and generating legitimacy than the instrumental effectiveness of the police. When people encounter police officers, they tend, on average, to care much more about the way those police officers behave in relation to them than the kind of the rewards or, or, or disbenefits those police officers can offer to them in terms of getting their stolen goods back, in terms of uh, arresting them, or whatever those instrumental outcomes might be. 
Why does procedural justice work? Well, it works because we're dealing with group settings. So the basic idea is that police officers represent an important sense, a social group to which most people feel they belong, the nation, the state, the community. You can characterise it in different ways. When police officers interact with people, they're sending them important messages about their status, their inclusion, their value within this group. So fair treatment communicates you're included in this group. Unfair treatment communicates you. You're excluded from this group. When you feel included, you're motivated to legitimise group authorities. You're motivated to cooperate with and on behalf of the group. You're motivated to comply with its laws. So there's an important effective element of procedural justice. It makes you feel included, and that motivates a whole set of behaviours. Um, I think there's also a kind of an important um, evaluative aspect of procedural justice. Um, police are exemplars of good conduct, or at least they should do. So when police officers behave in a certain way to use towards us, we're using this to provide information to say, is this police officer behaving the way that they should be behaving? And when they are, that motivates a reciprocal set of, uh, of behaviours on our part. When they're behaving in the wrong way, that might motivate a quite different set of behaviours on our part. And of course, if procedural justice works, and there's a lot of evidence that it does, um, cooperation and compliance... Um, with the police, with the law, are going to be secured, most importantly, by process-based styles of policing that attend to the relationship between police and individuals, between police and community. And this is where the two experiments um, really come in, I think. Um, a quick word on defining legitimacy, only in terms of, I think it's always useful to define terms, and there's lots of uh, fuzzy social science terms in, in all of this. Um, when I'm talking about legitimacy for the purposes of today, I'm drawing most importantly on the work of David Beetham, who's a political scientist, and he says that legitimacy is always granted by um, individuals to those who have power over them in some context on the basis of common shared values, most importantly. Uh, but more specifically, three dimensions of a relationship, if you like, must be fulfilled before a power can be considered legitimate within a particular social context. That's going to conformity of that power authority to a set of rules. Um, the justifiability of those rules in terms of shared beliefs. In other words, not only must the police abide by a set of rules, but we as the police must think they're in some sense the right set of rules. Um, and finally, it's not enough, claims Beetham, for people to believe that authorities are legitimate. They have to act in ways that both serve um, to recognise this legitimacy and I think empirically reproduce it on the ground. So he talks about express consent of those governed by a power. In the context of policing, we tend to think about the duty to obey. We think to, then to think that the legitimacy of police persists or consists at least in part um, in people's sense that they have a duty to obey the instructions of a police officer. And of course, out there in the real world, actual acts of deference, actual acts of obedience to the will of police officers serves to reproduce the legitimacy of police in particular contexts. Um, primarily, what I'm talking about here, of course, is the legitimacy as a psychological state. It's the legitimacy of police as it exists inside people's minds. That's the primary object of concern today. So you can think about this again as being the recognition and justification of the right of a power to exercise that power, exercise influence on a group of people. Um, when thinking about the sources of trust and legitimacy, and now is actually I'm going to get to the experiments in a minute, um, of course it's not all about procedural justice. That would be na naive and ridiculous to say that. It's not even all about effectiveness and the other aspects of police activity. So you might want to think, for example, about wider experiences of crime and the effect that they uh, have, may have on trust and legitimacy. We may want to think about the symbolic aspects of policing. We may want to think about the extent to which police represent and embody order. Um, and the legitimacy may be granted or withdrawn on the basis that they manage to do so successfully, or they appear to manage to do so successfully. There's a consistent link, for example, between police visibility, trust, and onto legitimacy. We find that in many, many cross-sectional survey contexts. Merely seeing police is, in the British context, associated with high levels of trust, 
higher levels of legitimacy. And of course, you could also then put in a whole range of psychological factors, social, psychological factors, sociological factors, etc., etc. So you could come up with a model of trust and legitimacy, which is useful to me, but less so to those of you at the back. But basically, all this is saying is on the left-hand side, um, we've got lots of factors, lots of things that could feed into trust and legitimacy. Visibility, personal contact, that's what I'm, con I'm concentrating on today. Vicarious contacts are the kind of stories that circulate within families, within social groups about the police, media, people's cultural repertoire. We can have experiences of crime, victimisation, experiences of antisocial behaviour, and then we can have social and psychological factors. So, for example, authoritarianism. For example, system justification theory. For example, power distance, etc. All these things are going to feed into trust and in various complicated ways that need not concern too much today into legitimacy and then on to cooperation and compliance. Some questions, and I've already... Um, addressed at least one of these, but I think it's worth raising again because it motivates the experiments. The first question, or the first issue here, is most of the evidence on these issues, almost everything I've said so far today, is evidenced, and it's evidenced by survey work, but it's evidenced almost entirely by cross-sectional survey work, snapshot surveys that only measure opinions and attitudes and orientations at one point in time. In other words, the evidence is good, but it's not that good. And this is where the field experiments come in, because it allows us to test whether the use of procedural fairness the way that police officers handle contacts between members of the public and themselves and members of the public, whether visibility are causally linked with trust and legitimacy. Um, and we've also heard that police, uh, personal experience, contact, um, other forms of police activity um, and behaviours doing that activity are likely to be important generators of trust and legitimacy. But what can police do about this? What, what are the policies that police officers can put in place, or police managers can put in place, to enhance trust, to enhance legitimacy? And one of the good things, I think, about doing experiments in this context is it really makes you think about this question. It really makes you think, OK, well, what can police do in this context? And thinking about what, police can, what can police do in this context becomes your intervention in the experiment. So that's a very, very long-winded uh, setup and bit of background. Now to go on to the experiments themselves. So I'm going to start with the Mounted Community Patrol experiment. This was, in essence, uh, designed and set up to look at the effect of police visibility on public trust and confidence. Actually, it does a bit more than that, and we'll come to that in a minute. As I've noted, perceptions of police visibility are consistently linked with high levels of trust and confidence in cross-sectional survey settings. I've always been rather sceptical of that. It seems at least, possible, at least as possible that people who have relatively high levels of trust and confidence believe that they see the police enough, or believe that they see the police quite often in areas. So the, 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 the causality it almost undoubtedly is flowing in both directions. Um, but underlying this, I think, is a whole other set of concerns, again, that I've always had. Do people really notice police activity in their neighbourhoods? Most people have got more interesting and more important things to do than go around constantly noting, noting whether police officers are patrolling in their areas. And, of course, then is visibility causally linked to trust. And this experiment is, is, is part of a much wider um, study into mounted police that Chris and I have been doing for the last 18 months. We think it's probably the first study into mounted policing that's ever taken place anywhere in the world. It is very niche, obviously, um, but I think it uncovers lots of interesting elements and lots of interesting aspects of policing in a context such as England and Wales. So what did we do? Which well, is a quasi-experiment. It's a quasi-experiment because there was no randomisation of the treatment. So what we did is we took six areas, four in Gloucestershire and two in London. The two were in Gloucester itself, two were in the wider county of Gloucestershire, and two were in South London. They were mostly wards, one was slightly bigger than an electoral ward. We matched them basically on where they were. So we had the two areas in Gloucester, the two areas in Gloucestershire, and the two areas in South London. They were actually very similar to each other across a lot of different 
measures. Um, and then we decided that three of those areas were going to get a dose of mounted policing. They were the test areas. Three of those areas were not going to get a dose of mounted policing. Those were the control areas. Um, we conducted first a pre-test telephone survey with a sample size of 1,000. That was in February this year. Then in March, the test areas got the dose of mounted policing. This basically was um, seven or eight six-hour shifts of mounted patrols in these areas over the course of that month. So it wasn't very much, and as I'll go on to show uh, in a minute, the actual public-facing time of the mounted units was about two and a half hours, two to three hours, in the areas where they patrolled. Um, business as usual in the control sites, so this is basically foot patrols. Um, and then alongside this, in both the tests and the control sites, we did a set of systematic social observation. Basically, we followed the horses around, and we had a huge amount of help um, from students to do this. Some of them are in the room at the moment, so thanks very much. And literally, we followed around staring at horses' ass for two and a half hours as they walked around these uh, neighbourhoods, engaging or doing whatever it was they were doing. Uh, we, Chris developed a, a mobile phone app to help us do this. So as we were following the horses around, we were tapping into our mobile, mobile phones what was happening, how many people were talking to them, the quality of the interaction, et cetera, et cetera. And then this was automatically uploaded to a database. So the analysis was very, very easy. It's a fantastic tool. And then we had a post-test post -test post survey as well. So we had a match pairs pre-post design. That's the, the technical phrase. Not that technical. Here's some of the things. We see some of the images of what they look like. Um, actually, these, I, mean, I think, Richard, you took all of these, didn't you? Um, this is relatively unusual because usually as soon as they stopped like this, as we're, going, as we're going to show, they were surrounded by people. So as soon as the mounted officers would stop in a shopping centre, in the centre of town, they'd act like a magnet to people. It would literally, in some places, swarm around them, patting the horses, talking to the officers, etc. That's probably really, really important. But these were just neighbourhood patrols in the classic sense. They just literally wandered around the neighbourhoods that we told them to go and wander around. They may have thought they were doing something different, but they really weren't. Um, three hypotheses. First two hypotheses didn't actually need the experiment to test, but they kind of, we need to prove those, or we need to have some evidence in relation to those before we go into the third one. So the first hypothesis is where people would notice this mode of policing. And as I say, it's, it's open to some question that people notice policing in their, in their neighbourhoods. Second hypothesis is that seeing mounted patrols would be associated with high levels of trust and confidence. And in this study, we distinguished between these components of trust and confidence, fairness, effectiveness, community engagement, and we had overall measures of confidence. As well, and the third hypothesis we tested with the experimental data: confidence the police would increase in test sites relative to control sites. This is how we measured the components of trust. I'm sure you can't see those, but trust in police community engagement, and then this is this is probably the most important one in this context. So we measured that by questions like understand: do the police in this area? Do we agree or disagree that the police in this area understand the issues that matter to people in the area in which you live? Engage with all members of the public in the area in which you live, tackling the issues that matter to people in the area in which you live. You see what we're trying to get to with community engagement there. Trust in police fairness, do they treat people with dignity and respect, are they friendly and approachable? Effectiveness, are they effective at preventing crimes, are they effective at catching people to commit crimes? And overall confidence, and that's got a measure of um, whether you would report a crime in the future, um, how confident are you in the ability of the police to deal with crime and disorder issues in your neighbourhood, and taking everything into account, how good a job do you feel the police are doing? It's an overall measure of confidence. First hypothesis, did people notice the amount of patrols? Absolutely. I'm stunned by this data every time I look at it. In the test areas, the proportion of people reporting that had recently seen mounted police rose from 15% to 43%. Now, I should say, um, none of these areas have had regular mounted patrols before, in living memory. Um, the 15% in the pre-test periods comes all from London, 
So people in London are just more used to seeing horses in some general sense. So they were saying, yes, I had seen mounted patrols in the neighbours. They hadn't, because none had taken them. But anyway, this is the kind of stuff you get with survey data. In one area, this is Sirencester in Gloucestershire, roughly half the town, according to this data, noticed that there had been recent mounted patrols in their area. Um, is seeing mounted police associated with higher levels of trust and confidence? Again, definitely. So 79% of those who had recently seen mounted patrols agreed with the statement that police understand the issues that matter to people in the area in which you live, compared with 69% of those who hadn't recently seen police control. And I find, again, I find this stunning. Let's think about that for a second. Merely having seen an officer on horseback is associated with a 10 percentage point shift in people agreeing that police understand the issues that matter to people in the area in which they live. Make of that what you will. Third hypothesis. The analysis is differences and differences. So what we're doing is looking at change in the test sites relative to change in the control sites, because we have pre and post measures in both. So this chart plots the differences and differences coefficients. If the, if the, co if the dot is above the zero line, that means there was a positive change in the test sites compared with the control sites. So all those dots, well, three of those dots are positive, but the error bars indicate they weren't statistically uh, divisible from zero. But because we'd done the systematic social observation, we knew that the patrols in Gloucester had been going outside the area in which they were meant to be patrolling into the city centre where they almost undoubtedly had been seen by people living all over Gloucester, including those living in the control site. So we had treatment migration. Yeah, people in the control site experienced the treatment which was meant to be limited to the test sites. When we looked in the data, yes, the proportion of people in the control site in Gloucester saying that they'd recently seen mounted community patrols in the neighbourhoods had increased significantly. And they hadn't recently seen mounted patrols in the neighbourhoods because there weren't any. They'd seen them in the city centre. But you get the idea. This is the way that people answer survey questions. So when we take Gloucester out, which I think we probably should... Yeah, I think both these results should be considered together because it's not entirely clear whether one is right and one is wrong. But when we take Gloucester out, we find that the mounted patrols has a, a significant and positive effect on trust in police community engagement, trust in police fairness, and overall confidence, and almost on effectiveness as well. All those coefficients are positive and they're actually quite large. It's just this one's not quite statistically significant at any conventional level. <coughs> I would say the systematic social observation was integral to this experiment. It never would have worked as well as it did, or slash at all, if we hadn't have been doing the systematic social observation at the same time. So we shadowed together collectively. There was, as I say, there was a, 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 quite a large number of us involved in this, including some people from police, the police in Gloucestershire. We shadowed 28 shifts in both the test and control sites. Um, this is 64 hours of public-facing police time. In total, um, we recorded over 5,600 what we termed engagements between police and public. What we were interested in doing was trying to note, trying to record people noticing police officers. Now, that's obviously quite difficult. I mean, anyone probably, in a sense, sees a police officer when they're walking down the street, even if it's only to step out of their way. We were looking for something slightly more than that, some kind of active recognition. So what we tended to do was record what we did do, is record things like um, if someone stopped and pointed at the horse, if someone took a camera, if they took a photo of the horse or the officer, if someone pointed to their child and we could see that their child was registering the horse, because those are the things that we think people might remember when stimulated to do so by the survey instrument further down the line. We also recorded um, more in-depth interactions between officers and members of the public. And what we found is the horses generated six times as many of, the, as many of these basic encounters as 
the foot officers in the control sites. This is really getting to understand just how noticeable these things are to people when they're walking around in neighbourhood settings. Um, there wasn't that many other statistically significant differences between the foot officers in the control sites and the uh, mountain officers in the test sites. But what we did find is when it came to slightly longer, more in-depth interactions with um, officers, so people actually talking to them more than to say hello, um, when there was a horse there, these encounters tended to be more positive. So there's something about the horse that seems to be enabling positive encounters between police and members of the public. There were the same number, roughly, between testing and control sites, but those in the test sites were more positive. So why did it work? Well, it depends what it is here. I mean, I think the experiment works because the intervention was clear, it was precise, it was simple, it was very, very different from business as usual. And I think the systematic social observation um, greatly aided in interpreting the results, massively aided in interpreting the results. Um, if it is the ultimate uh, cause of the observed effect, and this is where it starts to get a bit interesting, we're not sure. We don't know whether it was the horse, the rider, or the horse and the rider. And obviously there are implications for that. And one of the interesting things is that we can never know that because you can't separate out the horse and the rider in this context. It's impossible. So this intervention, this is something I'll come back to towards the end of this one, this intervention, although it seems quite simple, in fact it is quite simple, it's also quite complicated. We don't know what it is, what combination of horse, rider, and horse and rider caused the effects that we observed. What are the lessons? Well, some of the lessons here are, are quite clear. I and mean, I think police deployments in neighbourhood patrol, patrol can increase public trust. Um, and this probably has something to do with both visibility and community engagement. I think it's probably something to do with both being there and talking to people. It's some combination of those two things that led to the increase in public trust and confidence. Hence the community engagement measures and the, the, the large effect that the mountain patrols seem to have on those. I mean, other lessons here are much less clear. I mean, do we put all neighbourhood police on horses? Is that the lesson here? Well, clearly not. So what the what policy lessons here for police managers? How long do these effects last? We haven't designed that into the experiment. That's always an issue of any kind of intervention like this. How long did it take people's views in the test sites to regress back to their previous level? I would suggest probably not that long, actually. Um, another issue here, and this is in a sense a much bigger issue, one lesson from this, and actually the way it's being interpreted within some sections of the police service, um, is that all you have to do if you've got a problem with trust and police, confidence in a particular area is put loads more police officers in there. And that in and of itself will made, wave a magic wand and, and solve the problem that you have. That's extremely unlikely to be the case. And it also raises the issue of how much policing is too much. Is there a sweet spot here where you give people some extra police and it's fine, you give them a lot more and it starts to be seen as an occupation? I don't know the answer, but it's worth asking the question. Another issue, and again we'll return to this at the end, does everyone react to visible policing in the same way or highly visible policing in the same way as they seem to have done in this experiment? Again, surely not. So that was one experiment which worked well as an experiment. It worked extremely well as an experiment. The second study I want to talk about, uh, Scott Set, and I'll tell you why it's called that in a minute, um, actually worked much less well as an experiment, as I will go on to explain, but is nonetheless still extremely uh, interesting. So this really hence harks back to, to right to the core of the procedural justice model. That's the motivation for this study. So we're moving away from visibility per se, and perhaps a bit of chatting between police and public, to really trying to get the police to operationalise some of the core elements of the procedural justice model in the way they're dealing, in the way that they're talking with people. And Scott said was, um, uh, at his inception, was intended to be a replication of the Queensland Community Engagement Trial, QSET. 
This is a study done by Lorraine Maserol and her team in, I think, 2010 um, in Queensland, as you'd, as you'd expect, in Australia. And this was looking at the effects of a procedural justice intervention in the context of maths random breath testing in Queensland. So I don't know if any of you have been in Australia, you've seen this, and um, what they do in Australia, they do this in lots of states, I think. They set up huge roadblocks, and they put in large numbers of people on a more or less random basis. So obviously it's always unclear what random means in that context, but it seems random to the drivers, I suspect. And the baseline encounter in QSET, that they built their intervention on, seemed to be something like the officer would march up to the car, He'd, he or she would thrust the breathalyzer into the window, blow in this, the person would blow in this, the reading would come back negative, they would say on your way. The average encounter length and the baseline in QSET was 30 seconds. That's important. So what they did in QSET was to design an in intervention that it was intended to increase the procedural justice of that encounter from the perspective of the members of the public being stopped. So they started off with just getting the officers to say, hello, my name is Officer So-and-so from such and such station. Today we're doing random breath tests. This is why we're doing it. They hadn't been doing that before. And then they built more elements of the procedural justice model on that intervention. And the average encounter length in the, in the test area in QSET was, one, was 90 seconds. So they kind of tripled the length of the encounter, but it was still only 90 seconds long. And they found this intervention had a positive effect on perceptions of police fairness during the encounter, satisfaction with the encounter overall, and trust in police legitimacy in a more general sense. And QSET were aimed to replicate this in the context of road policing in Scotland. There is a replication <laughs> of the randomised control trial treatment, uh, the experiment, um, and we were examining a high volume routine encounters between members of the public and police officers. However, when we started looking at what was going on in Scotland, it was very apparent to us that it was very different to what was going on in Scotland. So the most, most obvious place to implement this trial was around what they call their National Festive Road Safety Campaign. They run every year over Christmas for very, very, very obvious reasons. During this campaign, drivers are stopped with the aim of preventing drink driving, although in Scotland they're not allowed to do random breath tests. They have, have a reason for breathalysing someone, and for improving vehicle and driver safety on the roads during the Scottish winter. Um, at the beginning, Police Scotland estimated there would be around 20,000 encounters doing this uh, road, road safety festival, whatever it's called, road, I can never say that, festive road safety campaign. So it's high volume, there's a lot of contact between police and public during this campaign. And again, we had match pairs pre-post design, so our design was actually different to QSET as well. So there are 20 road police units in Scotland, we divide them into 10 pairs, primarily on geographical factors, although some other factors were important as well. Then we randomly assigned one of those pairs to the test group, and then the other one went into the control group. Um, all drivers stopped over the, this period um, in Scotland were given a questionnaire. So some of them were in tests, some of them were in the control. Um, but our main issue was that business in usual with Scotland was different to that in Australia. Scottish police were already doing a lot of the things that the perceived justice models suggest they should do. So they were much better at talking to drivers. They were much better at explaining to drivers where they were being stopped. They were much more, in some sense, friendly with drivers. I mean, I think you want to put some caveats around that. But it was clearly a very different kind of encounter than what was going on in Australia. So we've, we, had, we, were, we were faced with the challenge of how can we design an intervention and how can we design that intervention to make our intervention as different from business as usual as possible within the context of these encounters. So what we did is we designed a set of working with the police, with the focus groups and what have you around this. Um, we designed a, a, a kind of checklist or more than that, we boiled down into a checklist um, that attempted to ensure that they would verbally communicate all of a series of key messages based around the procedural justice model doing their encounters with people doing the, 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 the 
the road safety campaign. We also added a leaflet to this. So all the drivers in the test condition got a leaflet. So the, the, the intervention was both making sure the officers did all their things on their checklist in terms of procedural justice and gave people a leaflet, which was intended to explain people why they've been stopped, the importance of the campaign, sort of around clear communication of, 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 of why police are doing this. So the key message was obviously respect, equality, trustworthy motives, dignity, neutrality, citizen participation, etc., etc. All the core elements of procedural justice were meant to go into these experimental encounters. Um, that's a checklist, again, you can't see that, but just in case anyone's interested, perhaps, with questions. This is, the officers were given an A5 aid memoir to carry around them, and they were supposed to remember to do all these things during the encounter. That's the leaflet. It's got a bit distorted when I copied it out, but basically, and so it starts off, for example, thank you for your time today. We welcome your views on all aspects of police in Scotland. Details of our latest initiatives, local policing teams, and how to contest can be found on the website. I wanted to put a phone number on there, but they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't give us a phone number. To me. But you get the idea. Four hypotheses motivating this experiment. Uh, we had an intervention, as I just explained. First hypothesis, it would improve perceptions of procedural justice and trust with the officers doing the stop itself. Second hypothesis, it would increase overall satisfaction with the stop, overall satisfaction with the way the officers behave doing the stop. Third hypothesis, it would increase trust and confidence in the police in Scotland in a general sense. So we've got people's perceptions of specific officers conducting the stop and their perceptions of the police in Scotland more widely and a fourth hypothesis that the intervention would increase police perceptions of police legitimacy in Scotland as a whole. Um, just a, a note, and I, said, I promised I'd come back to this, this is how we measured legitimacy in this study and in lots of studies as well. So we're distinguishing between two different components of legitimacy, what we can call perceived duty to obey the police, I feel a moral obligation to obey the police. I feel a moral duty to support the decisions of police officers, even when I disagree with them. I think, you're trying to, I think you can see what we're trying to get at there. And what we call moral or normative alignment with the police. The police have the same sense of right or wrong as me. Police stand up for values that are important for people like me. I support the way the police usually act. The analysis was, again, differences and differences. So we were looking at, we had pre-post match pairs. So we had a survey in the field in the first work of the week of December. We then took a week off when we distributed the survey questionnaires and all the materials to the officers in the experimental units, and then we had a survey running from that first, second week right to the end of the period, which I think was the 2nd of January. So pre and post measures again. So again, we're looking at differences and differences. So the analysis is exactly the same as before. What is the change in the test sites compared with the change in the control sites? Again, a positive coefficient would indicate there's positive change in the test sites compared with the control sites. All the coefficients are negative. We didn't make things better, we didn't even not get an effect, we made things worse. So in the control sites, perceptions of stop procedural justice fell compared to the control sites. Um, trust doing the stop also fell, although it wasn't quite statistically significant. And satisfaction with the stop fell significantly in the control sites compared with the test sites. I can't say this again enough, we didn't make things better, we made things worse. Similarly, with overall trust, I mean, they're not statistically significant, but again, they're both negative, and that's actually quite large as these things go. And similarly, with legitimacy, again, negative, not statistically significant, but negative. So our hypotheses weren't, well, the data didn't support our hypotheses. In fact, the data contradicted our hypotheses. The intervention damaged perceptions of procedural justice during the encounter. The intervention decreased satisfaction of the stop. There's no significant effect on general trust and confidence, no significant <coughs> effect on legitimacy, but all the statistical effects in the study were negative. So in some overall sense, I'm quite confident in saying we just made things 
worse. Why is that? Why didn't it work in this context? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. Well, for one thing, again, it's important to note this. Again, it seems quite simple. We've got a really quite complicated intervention here. Not only have we got two aspects of it, we've got the checklist and the things the officers were meant to do and the leaflet, but we've got all the different things that the police officers were meant to do. So we don't know which one of those things they were meant to do had the effect that we were experiencing, or which combination of those things. I think probably what really happened is we bureaucratised the encounter. So to the extent that the officers did the things that we told them to do, and of course that's always open to some doubt in this context, um, I think they became more worried about ticking boxes. They became more worried about doing all the things they were meant to do, and in doing so, they became less interested in the person they were dealing with. I also suspect the process took longer in the experimental sites, and this was precisely experienced as procedurally unfair by the people involved. Because if you, take, if you drag something out, if something takes longer than it really needs to, I think you're really communicating disrespect to someone by doing so. You don't care about your time, I'm going to keep you here as long as I need to. And there's some evidence from that in QSET, because in QSET they timed the length of the encounters. So the mean encounter length in QSET was 90 seconds. That had a positive effect on trust and legitimacy, etc., etc. When the encounter length went, I think it's over something like 130 seconds, that effect reversed. And then the intervention had a negative effect on trust, which is mostly cooperation. That's probably something going on. It could be the leaflet. I actually don't think so, for various reasons. I mean, 20 people in the experimental group couldn't remember getting the leaflet. I couldn't remember or didn't, getting the le- didn't get the leaflet. Their views were much, much more negative than everyone else in the experimental group. So I don't think it was the leaflet, but of course it could have been. And there's a follow-up study in, in the pipeline um, to really try and get to grips with some of those ideas. So again, we're, we're conducting uh, focus groups with the cops involved in the intervention to see you know, what went wrong, how could we do this um, better in the future. So I'm coming to the end now. As a few final slides. First, reflecting on, on, on experimental experiments in, in public confidence police legislation, and I think possibly in, in, criminology, in criminological settings more broadly. Um, I think one important message here, and, and, and this should be fairly obvious, but I think it's important to, to, to reiterate, experiments don't really work in isolation. I think they're mo- much, much more effective, most effective, properly effective, when they're embedded with other research, other modes of research, as we found in, in, in the matter community patrols, and systematic social observation, was a vital aspect of that piece of research. And of course, in terms of replication, replication is a powerful device, but as we saw, replication can be difficult. So one of, the, one of the implications, I think, from, for example, publishing Scott's set, is I suspect it will be treated by most people as a replication of QSET. It really wasn't. It was another type of experiment altogether, but it will be treated as a replication that has implications. Um, this touches on a point I raised before. We've considered average effects. All statistical analysis is the type I've been talking today is looking at average effects. So on average, people in the communities who experienced the matter patrols had higher levels of trust and confidence as a result of those patrols, we think. But that doesn't mean to say that everyone in those communities felt the same way about those mounted patrols. And it's possible, in fact, probably quite likely, that some people came away with more negative views of the police as a result. Their views were just swamped by the positive results of other people. And how to isolate this variation within different population groups is a real challenge for both this type of work and, as I say, experiments in criminological uh, in criminological settings more widely. Um, things can go right, uh, things can go wrong as well as right, or more likely no effects, to be honest, but things can go really quite seriously wrong. What do you do with that? What do you do with that information? I think that has both theoretical and policy implications. I mean, in a kind of philosophy of science sense, 
We did, in, in Scott's set, we designed an intervention based on the principles of procedural justice. We spent quite a lot of time doing that. We built all those principles into that. We really tried our best to make this work in this context. We made things worse. So we should go back and revisit our theory. There's something wrong with our theory. It's not doing. It's not explaining the world in the way we think it should do. That's not going to happen. I can guarantee it. No one is going to go back to the procedural justice model and think, well, there's something wrong with this theory off the back of Scott's set. Now, and I think in the case of procedural justice, I think that's justified. There's lots and lots and lots of other evidence out there suggests that procedural justice effects are real and that do persist in, in, the, in the world in some sense. But obviously, in other contexts, that might not be the case. Um, and probably, I think there's always a, a temptation in, in experimental research um, to think that you got the intervention wrong and all you need to do is redesign the intervention rather than revisiting the theory that motivated the intervention in the first place. In policy terms, do we want police in Scotland to come away from this saying not only are we don't need to worry about procedural justice as our officers are already doing quite well at this, but, well, anything we try to do about procedural justice isn't going to make things better, it's going to make things worse. Well, obviously not, and police in Scotland, police in Scotland are fortunately not that stupid, but again, I think you can see the risks that may, um, may, may come out of some of this stuff. I mean, I think much more broadly, of course, experiments can create as many questions as they answer, as they answer. and, and, and uh, complex interventions are particularly problematic in this regard. Many of the interventions in lots of the experiments that people are doing within criminology at the moment are far more complicated than the interventions that I've just described to you today. And even in this relatively simple context, we've seen the implications of trying to unpick what aspect of the mounted patrol had an effect of trust and confidence, what aspect of our intervention in Scotland led to these negative Outcomes, and this obviously all speaks to the, the much more important idea. Um, best, I always think best um, outlined by Nancy Cartwright and some of the people she's worked with is the problem for policymakers in particular of taking the results of randomised controlled trials and other types of experiments and saying, well, it worked over here, it works in this context. Will it work in the context in which I'm operating in? And complex interventions are make that really, really difficult to unpick. In terms of kind of trust and confidence and legitimacy research, I think I think some of the key lessons here, I and mean, other, other people might have other ideas. Um, it seems pretty obvious to me now, and I've always been very sceptical about this, that the long-term decline in public confidence I started off talking about at the beginning probably really has got something to do with declining police visibility over that time. This decline in trust and confidence happened over a period when, for example, rural police stations were closed. The police basically withdrew from many rural areas of England and Wales, when police officers were moving off the streets and into cars and starting police in different ways on that basis. And I think this is the kind of research we've done um, with, the, with the horses. It fits with some other work that's really starting to suggest there's just a link between police visibility and trust and confidence. The question then becomes, well, what do you do that, do to that? I mean, take one of the test areas in the Mountain Community Patrol uh, study. This was Sirencester. I'm pretty confident that people in Sirencester are getting about the right level of policing they need in some objective sense. I don't think it's a very high crime area. The police are there. They do do foot patrols in that area. There is a police station in Sirencester. They will come if you call them, etc., etc. But the fact that they reacted so well to these, these mounted patrols really indicates to me that they're not getting the kind of policing they want. So how do you offset their subjective needs for highly visible forms of policing that may not be particularly effective in reducing crime, dealing with disorder, etc., etc., but, but satisfy the needs and wishes of the communities you're meant to be serving as police officers? Um, the, the results from Scott's set really suggest to me that when you've got um, context with relatively high levels of trust and confidence across the population 
as a whole, which is what you've got in Scotland, which is what you've got in England and Wales, for all their significant variation within that population. It seems unlikely now, I think, actually, to me, reflecting on this, that public perceptions are unlikely to be boosted any further from their already, already relatively high levels by just a simple additive effect. We just need to do a bit more procedural justice, and we're going to get returns to that in terms of trust and confidence legitimacy. You may need more radical interventions, I think, which in particular target those groups in the population that don't have high levels of trust don't have high levels of legitimacy. And then, of course, there's a whole other set of questions. How do you identify those groups? What kind of interventions can you do there? Do they, do, do they look like procedural justice interventions that uh, the general population might respond well to or not? Or do they look something like something very quite, really quite different? Um, and I think uh, two more points before I finish. Um, one way to look at almost everything I've said to say is really this is just talking the operationalisation operation, of the kind of bleeding obvious. Right. Of course people want procedurally fair policing. Of course people want police officers to treat them fairly. Of course people want physical signs of order in their community. We didn't need experiments and spending tens of thousands of pounds on these things to prove that was the case. I think there's an argument to be had around that. I think the research is interesting nonetheless. But if that being the case, if it's so obvious that these are things that police should be doing, why do they get it wrong so, brackets, relatively often? What are the things motivating the police not to behave in the ways I've been talking about today, which everyone kind of thinks they should, they think they should in most circumstances, but they don't always behave like that. Why is that? Why do police officers misbehave so relatively often? There's a whole other set, really set of interesting questions there to be asked, and I think this should be a key direction kind of trust, confidence, legitimacy research in the future, turning the lens back onto the police service and thinking about the ways that they motivate their behaviours. And the final point, and I'm, I'm still not quite sure I'm kind of phrasing this right, but one of my concerns here, and, and again this is a concern that's both specific kind of trust, confidence, legitimacy research, and I think applies in other areas of, of criminal justice research as well, is there's a risk of uh, what I can only characterise as instrumentalising the aims of criminal justice research. And it seems to me that procedural justice policing, process-based policing models, are good in themselves. They don't need... Um, they don't need uh, RCTs and other experimental designs or other research designs to come along and say, if you do this, you will get some reward further down the line. You as a police officer, you will get higher levels of cooperation. You will get higher levels of cooperation. They don't need that to justify their existence. Just, their existence is justified by the fact that police are behaving in that way. And of course, you could say, again, and this is a much wider point, the high levels of customer satisfaction, inverted commas, customer satisfaction, public satisfaction with the police is a positive endpoint in and of itself. You don't need to go any further than that. And of course, you don't need experimental designs to trace that. You can do that with a survey or just by talking to people. And I think that's what. Yes. Thank you very much.